13. Our passage for today will be verses 6 through 11. John chapter 13, verses 6 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those. I want to go ahead and read verses 1 through 11 for context. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that he, excuse me, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If, you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. That is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Now for a little context and background on this, um, all four gospels give this account in different contexts. This is the Last Supper is where we are. Passover is coming soon. The disciples are arguing over who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God, who will sit at his right hand and on his left. Judas has been stealing from their collection and has every intention of betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which would be the equivalent of a a month's wages. All of this is currently going on, and in less than 24 hours, Jesus of Nazareth will be dead. He will be beaten, spit on, mocked, bruised, wrongfully convicted and nailed to a cross. But when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart and out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is verse 1. Pastor mentioned this. He preached on this two weeks ago last week. He went into depth on on this love and, and what the foot washing Meant, but we're going to kind of continue in that thought of what was going on here and why or what, excuse me, how did Jesus display this love, right? If he loved him to the end, how did he display this love? We did it by washing the disciples' feet. Now, this idea or this concept or custom of wash, foot washing uh, was to be done by a slave or a servant. It was not to be performed by even a Jewish servant, but Gentile slaves. But Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, humbled himself and embraced this role of servant to serve his disciples. Now, if if you've ever gone on one of these grace retreats, acts retreats, or walked to Emmaus, these different retreats, or had the opportunity to have your foot washed or feet washed by someone else, 
it is a very, very humbling act. It, it, it crushes your pride. It, there's hardly anything like it. But for the time of, of what's going on in this time, this act was, is customary. This was going on every day. But it was done by the least of these. It was done by the slaves. It was thought of if someone else was to do this, a Jew or someone who was a teacher, someone held in high regard, this would be a demeaning act, shameful and embarrassing. But Christ, the anointed one, did this act for his disciples. Now, I want us to really chew on that as we think about what's going on in this passage. We read it. We're we're looking back at what happened. But I really want us to focus on what Christ is doing in this time. It was not only him washing the disciples' feet and showing this dramatic and, and amazing supreme act of humility. It went deeper than that, and that's what we're going to talk about today. He chose this act to resonate with his disciples so that when he left, it would leave no doubt in their minds of who he is, and also it would carry this significant as they, this, it would carry out a significant meaning for them as they carried out the Great Commission. So as we get into this time, there's three questions that I want to ask that I think really help us frame the, the discussion, the sermon that we're going to have today for what Jesus did, the effect it had on them, and what we need to carry away from it. Those questions are as follows. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus offering? And what is Jesus clarifying? I believe we can answer these three questions uh, during our time today. So let's first look at verses 6 and 7. I want to reread those as we ask the question, what is Jesus doing? It says this, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. As I did my study during the week, doing multiple different studies and and. Uh, reading the word, finding reference passages that spoke to the same situation, listening to sermons, uh, commentaries, doing all that. There was a couple of things that really resonated with me as I was thinking on these two verses in particular. And the thing, the impact that it had for me was as I was trying to put myself in the minds of these disciples is that I could see this having a threefold uh, effect on them. There would be a a physical effect, this impact that it would have on them, would have a spiritual effect effect on them and then also a mental effect to them. So I want to touch on those three things as we look at these three verses or these two verses, excuse me. How was it physically effective or what it, how did it affect the disciples physically? Well, Jesus exhibited perfect humility before his disciples in performing this act, right? It was a physical or visible display of humility. As scripture tells us, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he displayed perfect love and humility in performing this act of foot washing. The king stepped down from his throne and took on the role of a peasant. As we've read before, as as mentioned in John chapter 12, I, I believe, I forgot to write down the reference, King Jesus, the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if the disciples ever needed an example of humility and what it looks like while in the midst of them fighting over who was the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus did so perfectly. But his act was more than just what the eye saw. As we read in 1 Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks at the outward appearance, but it's the Lord who looks at the heart. Jesus, being truly man and truly God, perfectly and truly displayed perfect humility, physically and also spiritually. So how did he do this spiritually? What was the spiritual impact or effectiveness that this had on them? Well, this wasn't only a transcendent act of humility being performed by God. This was also symbolic or spiritual uh, of the inter- uh, symbolic of the internal cleansing Christ would offer to all who come to him. And we know this is true just by what we've seen in verse 1, we see in verse 7, and then it's laid out a little clearer for us in verse 10. <clears throat> Jesus tells Peter in this verse, in verse, excuse me, in verse 7, that he doesn't quite understand this now, but he will. And then as we will get into verse 10, this will come full circle for us and for Peter, I believe. Depending on the time of this meal, of, of the, during this uh, time that they're having this last supper, it is believed that Jesus would be dead within 15 to 18 hours. He would be arrested, tortured, humiliated, hung naked on a cross, and then killed. But in his death, the wrath of God would be satisfied perfectly and completely. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, I I think it's very important for us to understand this symbolic act that he was doing was pointing to a greater reality, and we see that with Christ on the cross. And the writer of Hebrews, I believe, lays this out clearly for us in chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. It says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. This is speaking of the Levitical priesthood. They were almost like butchers, offering sacrifices day in and day out, always having to stand offering these sacrifices because people were always committing sins, and all this, these sacrifices would do would cover sin. They wouldn't atone for sin. They were just covering them until the next time they committed a sin. But listen to what it says in verses 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What he was doing, Peter did not quite understand, but he would afterward. This act of foot washing carried this physical and spiritual components to them, but there was also a mental aspect to them that I want to uh, mention as well. How was it mentally effective, or how did it impact the disciples mentally? Well, as Jesus humbles himself and takes on the form of a servant, he is obedient to the point of death, as Philippians 2, 5 through 11 tells us. This was an act that would resonate in the minds of the disciples until their dying day. Now, as I was reading over this and, like I said, contemplating and meditating on these verses, there's always different scriptures that come to mind. And one of the passages that came to mind was found in John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, as I'm trying to put myself in the mind of the disciples in this time, right? They're just having another meal, right? This is just a run of the meal that they're going through. They don't realize that Jesus is dying soon, uh, but he's foretold his death many a times. And one of the many things that I do believe came back to the mind since we have it recorded in scripture was verses 23 and 24 in John 12. Listen to this. this is, these are Jesus' words. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Now, this is but one example of the things that Jesus did and that were brought to the remembrance of the disciples as they walked with him for those three years. The Apostle John was impacted greatly during his life and him writing his gospel. And I do believe there's just tremendous uh, wealth of knowledge to be and wisdom to be had from his gospel alone, uh, as well as all of Scripture. But there's a portion in his letter in John chapter 20 that lays out his heart and why he wrote the letter that he wrote in verses 30 and 31. I want to read those for you. This was the effect that it had on, on John and the effect that I hope that it has on us as well. Listen to this. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But how beautiful is that? That is an amazing thing. John's life was so impacted by Christ that he wrote a gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit to do but that w- so that we could have life. I-, I really appreciate the way that James White, when he was here, he mentioned about, Peter, about Paul, but I-, I must say it about John as well. There was a point in time when there was only one letter. This letter that John wrote, there was one copy of it. There was one. There was just one. He wrote it, and then he sent it out. But there has been men, women, and children that have died so that this can be in our hands today because they believed it. That's, that is amazing. I, I think we lose sight of that. This is a precious gift that God has given us through the blood of his people. And it's a gift that keeps on giving, right? It had that kind of an impact on his people. Let's look at verse 8. What is Jesus offering us in verse 8? I think we already answered it, but what, are we, what is Jesus offering us? Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. This is very emphatic language that's being used here. This is like, it doesn't get more intense than this, the way that he's saying it in the original language. But Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no share with me. Now, when Peter responds, I think it's easy for us to just look at him in hindsight, knowing everything that we know now, to say, this dude just once again putting his foot in his mouth, right? Just, he, he just, he hadn't learned, right? He walks on water, sinks, he, he's, you know, I'll never leave you, right? You know, you're going to deny me three times. See, all these things that he does throughout scripture, um, you know, and we tend to think of him as a foolish man, but how many things would be written down about us that people would think were foolish if our entire life was recorded for the world to see. The thing is, with Peter, this was a culturally appropriate response. Right? This act was not to be performed by a rabbi, especially the one that you believe is the Christ, the anointed one of Israel. That, that's not for him to do. I, I've, I've, I tried to find some kind of comparison for modern day. All comparisons for Christ fail uh, in creation, but the best that I could do to try to relate this to us today, like something that's just outrageous. Um, imagine you and your spouse, right? You and your wife are, the kids get sent away. You're in the prime of your life, right? Just, you're, you're physically fit. The kids are away with grandma and y'all are just having a night alone. Y'all are just going to watch movies, eat junk food and just relax, right? That's what you're doing. You're at home. It's just y'all two. And you're sitting there watching a movie and you hear a window bust in your house or you hear a door get kicked in in a different part of the house, not the room that you're in. Not the, not the room that you're in, right? 
And so right, right away, your wife is like, whoa, 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 honey, let me go check this out for you. Right? Yeah, we're, we're laughing, right? It's like, no. Like, what, what? No, hold on. What are you thinking? Right? This, sit yourself down. Like, this is for me to do. Right? That, that's the kind of response that Paul is, or uh, that uh, John, is, or excuse me, Peter is having right now. That's what he's doing. It, it, it baffles him that Jesus would even consider this act. Like, like we would think of our wives, like, well, most of us should be anyways. Uh, that's how we should be acting if our wives are trying to get up. Um, but, you know, that, that's, that's, Paul, that's John's, excuse me, why I keep mixing it. That's Peter's response, right? That's, how he, that's where his mind is, right? You should never do this. Jesus, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, who rebuked the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, who healed the sick, who came to reign over his creation. In the middle of this meal, takes off his cloak, right? In the middle of just a standard meal, starts to perform this act for them. It, it, it baffled their minds. Now, although I do say that Peter's response is natural, it is appropriate for the day, what Peter's response should have been was he should have been the first one on his knees with that towel washing Jesus' feet. Right? But they were too busy infighting, trying to figure out who's the best in the kingdom, who's going to sit at the right hand, who's going to sit at the left. All these other things are on their mind. They're not focusing on what, what is at hand, what is at stake. Jesus is telling them, the hour has come, it's here. Like, I'm departing from y'all. And their minds are elsewhere. No, you're not going to serve me. I'm not letting you serve me. Peter tells him, or excuse me, Jesus tells Peter, if you do not allow me to do this, you will have no share with me. So what is Jesus offering? What is his share that he is speaking of? Well, he is telling them, if I do not cleanse you of your unrighteousness, represented by your filthy feet, consecrating you, atoning for your sins by the shed blood and accounting my righteousness to you, you will have no share in my inheritance. Scripture tells us, and it's very clear, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You will have no share with me. You will have no communion with me. You will have no portion with me. Now, this offering of Jesus is the greatest gift we could ever receive, and it is loaded with benefits. When we receive the gift of salvation, when we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, it changes everything changes everything. When we have been justified by faith, we receive peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive Christ's perfect righteousness, the removal of guilt. We receive a clean heart, ears that can hear, that ears that can hear and eyes that can see, faith to believe, and a perfect love that casts out fear. We receive not a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-control. We receive entrance into the new covenant, not like the one of old that's mediated by priests, but one that is mediated by Christ himself, who is able to save to the uttermost. Now, although Jesus makes this gracious offer to Peter and the disciples, he makes it very clear to them what he's doing. But due to the hardness of hearts, and unbelief, this offer is not actually granted 
to everyone. Now let's look at verses 9 through 11 and ask that question. What is Jesus clarifying here? Why is this not for everyone? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, all of them. This includes Judas Iscariot. I think that we need to let that sink in too. Jesus washed all their feet. Judas saw the miracles. He experienced the fellowship. He enjoyed the benefits, all the benefits of being one of the twelve. Right, he saw water turn to wine. He saw the, the feeding of the 5,000, the 4,000, the, all the healings that he did, the lame man walking, the blind man seeing, the deaf man hearing, the lame man walking, all these things, he saw them. Judas was right there. He saw all of them. He looked just like them. Whenever Jesus tells them that one of them would betray them, all of them looked at each other. No one knew who the one that was going to be the deceiver was. He looked just like them. He talked just like them. He preached just like them. He acted just like them. But he was a deceiver. He was a hypocrite. Jesus in John, John 17 calls him the son of destruction. He was a betrayer, and ultimately he was unclean. Now, as I said, as I was doing my study this week, I, I ran across a sermon about Judas specifically. And all these things that I'm saying about him, these are all true of us before Christ. That's, that's where we are. So I, don't take this as me just running him through the mud for the sake of running him through the mud. It's true of him, but it's true of all of us apart from the saving work of Christ. But there is a passage in Hebrews 6 that mentions apostasy. If you're not familiar with the term of apostasy, it means to walk away from the faith. Right? That, that's, that's what this, that phrase means. To be an apostate or to apostatize means to walk away from the faith. Uh, this pastor that I listened to mentions how this description that's given in Hebrews 6 fits Judas. And I, I agree with him. And I want to read these verses for you. And I, and I don't want you to think of anyone else. I don't want you thinking, ah, this kind of sounds like someone else or thinking anywhere else. That this is a time for us to self-examine. You are here today to hear from God through his word, through the, the broken vessel that I am, this instrument to hear from him, right? So th this is for you. This is for you. So let's listen to these words. Let's search our hearts. Let's, let's examine. Let's examine ourselves and not look anywhere else. But listen to this. This speaks of Judas, or this speaks of the apostate, which Judas is one of them. Listen to this. It says, for it is impossible, impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come to have to and then have fallen away. <coughs> excuse me. To restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Those are strong words there.
I think it's important for us to hear those warnings as they're given in Scripture. A lot of times we think of people and what they do and, and kind of look at the actions more so than the heart. We can't see the heart. That's for God to decide. But Judas didn't keep those 30 pieces of silver that he uh, betrayed Jesus with. He tried to give them back. Right? That looks like repentance. It looks like it. Because I don't want it anymore. I realize I've done something wrong. Why did he realize he had did something wrong? He ends up killing himself. Killed himself after that. Right? He, he was trying to offer some sort of penance for his sins on his own. But what did he tell Peter? Whenever he told him, you would deny me three times, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. But Take heart. I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you. It's nothing to do with Peter. Nothing to do with Peter at all. Jesus is praying for him. He's praying for us. That's the difference. This gift that was offered, he gave it to Peter. It was withheld from Judas because of the unbelief and the, and the hardness of his heart. But as I said earlier, Judas looked just like the disciples. He looked just like him, acted just like him. There was no difference in what you can see in him and any of the others. Even when he told him, go and do what you have to do, they thought he was going to go do something else. They had no clue. He was the least likely to be the deceiver. Right? That's how well he hid himself in plain sight. Now as we close... As one of your pastors, I, I've, there comes times where we, you know, we give very compassionate, loving sermons, and then there's times where we have to, we have to, we have to preach hard, right? I mean, if, when, the, when the word calls for it, that's what we have to do. We are ministers and servants of God's word. I don't get to go beyond what God's word says, but when it's here, we got to be faithful to it. Can't do anything else. There's nothing else worthy of it. I, my words fall short, but when God's word speaks, we have to respond to it. And so I have to say, I have I, been compelled to say this. I have to say it, but I think if we're being honest with ourselves, if we look at the way church goes and, and our motivations for being here today, I think Christianity as a whole, right, Christianity is the worst religion to follow half-heartedly. Now, if you didn't hear me right, don't, it, it is the worst religion to follow half-heartedly, to have one foot in and one foot out. Right, to be a half-hearted Christian is the worst place to be. There are so many other religions out there that will give you exactly what you want. They'll give you a list of things to do. They'll tell you, do these things and you'll feel better about yourself. All other religions, all of them, they are all man-centered outside of Christian, biblical Christianity. All of them are man-centered. All of them will tell you, do these things, and you'll achieve enlightenment. Do these things, you'll, you'll feel righteous. It's all of that. But as we hear through the, the hymns, the great hymns, right? On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. 
We cannot fake faith. We can't do it. It's going to always show itself. It did for Judas. We cannot fake faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. When we think about who Jesus is, what he has done, we either believe him or we don't. There is no middle ground. He is either God or he's a liar. He is either the Messiah or he is a megalomaniac. He's not both. He's not just a good teacher. He's not only a a moral teacher or a prophet. He is either God or he isn't. He's not, he, he can't be both. And so we have to make that decision for ourselves. Where is our faith? Is it going to be in ourselves? Trusting in the things that I can do? Well, I come to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I say my prayers. You know, I, I'm nice to people. I'm doing all these things. Right? Is that where my faith is? Or is it in spite of my best efforts, they're still filthy rags, and Christ has saved me from my best efforts? Where is is my faith at? So I think we need to ask ourselves this question. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Has he done that? It doesn't matter what you've done. Has he saved you? Has he saved you? Not have I done this, have I done, has he saved you? Are you trusting in that? And if so, if you answer yes to that, your life needs to reflect it. It has to. You've been given wonderful and precious gifts and benefits. But if you have tasted and been enlightened, but never truly possessed saving faith, it is all for nothing. So I'm going to leave you with this, with the word of the Lord, because it is his word that does not return void. With words from that same chapter. And I ask you to to listen to these words, because they are the words of the Lord. It says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Return to the Lord that he may have compassion on you. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray.